Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. All right. Good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. Today, we are talking about something very interesting that really relates to your life savings. So I want to ask you a question as we are getting started here. Do you want to know that your life savings is safe and secure? I think that's something that we probably all have top of mind right now. And if you're thinking of potentially using life insurance, specifically whole life insurance, to store your savings in a way that you're building cash value inside a life insurance policy, you probably have this question in the back of your mind. Is life insurance really that safe? Is it really stable? Is it secure? Is it something that I can trust? And so we want to talk with you about today life insurance company ratings and how strong is the life insurance industry really? We're going to answer questions like, could my insurer go out of business? What would that actually mean? What happens then? And even though we're talking about a worst case scenario, I think we really want to make sure that we're shaking this whole thing out and being honest and open and upfront about really the safety and security of life insurance companies and the industry as a whole. So good morning and welcome to the show, Bruce. Good morning. This will be um, uh, both, um, I don't know if exciting is the right word, but it'll be a challenge. Um, to actually explain this to a point where people are comfortable with it. Um, but it really, a lot of it's just common sense when you get down to it. So if people can think about it as common sense, I think uh, it'll be a little bit easier to understand. I love, Bruce, that you are always so, um, oh, shoot, there's a word I'm looking for, and now I'm forgetting what it is. But it, you're very um, good at just bringing things down to the bare bones of what is most important. And I'll find a word. Um, for what what I meant by that in a second, but common sense. I love that. So today we're talking about protecting and preserving your wealth in this episode about life insurance company ratings and why they matter for your safety and peace of mind, especially right now. So if you want to have safety, you want to have confidence and peace of mind and guarantees, make sure that your life savings is protected and you want to know that the life insurance company and industry as a whole is stable and can fulfill their promises. So you can use that life insurance company ratings to double check your life insurance purchase before you make it. So you make sure you're making the most safe and sound decision. Really, this is an episode you want to tune into right now. So we're also going to share with you what the life insurance companies did during the Great Depression many, many years ago that made them more secure than commercial banks and investment companies. And now to kick off this episode, I want to actually share a quick story. So let me tell you about a time when I was riding horse as a child with my family and we encountered a narrow wooden bridge on an unfamiliar trail. And what that taught me about making sure that what you think is safe and secure really is safe and secure. So really quick story. I'm riding my dad, my siblings, I don't remember how many of us, we had a whole group and we're on horseback and we decided to check out a brand new trail on the neighbor's property. And we came across this bridge and we're looking at this really narrow wooden bridge that we know that the horses are going to be a little bit um, scared about being able to go across. And we wanted to not only make sure that we're in a position that the horses are going to be safe, but they're not going to jump over the edge and that the boards are going to not be rotten. They're not going to sink through. 
And honestly, I just remember, I don't remember the rest of the ride much, but I remember that part. And I remember thinking, well, bridge is supposed to be safe and secure. It is supposed to be this thing that we can trust, but how do we know for sure? And how are we going to figure this out? So I remember we got off the horses. We walked across it on our feet. We shook the bridge. We said, we kind of looked at it from the side and from underneath. And we said, well, we think this is safe and secure. We're going to go across. And we put the lightest horse across first. That was the most calm. And they were able to make it across safely. And then the rest of the horses were able, able to follow suit. And that just really reminded me about this desire to make sure that if you think something is safe and secure and certain that it really is. And it can be scary if you don't know it's secure. I wanted to say thank you, Joy, um, for watching this morning. And she said, thanks for sharing this, Rachel. So here's what we're going to do. Today, we're going to talk about the life insurance companies and how to test out and explore like we did with that bridge, why insurers are financially strong and how they back up their claims. So Bruce, I know this is something that's near and dear to your heart. I know that several of the authors that I've read around this whole concept are people that you know personally as well. So let's first talk about how do we know that we have safety and confidence and peace of mind and guarantees in the life insurance industry? Well, it's, um, uh, there's a couple things that people need to understand because we're going to be comparing and contrast the life insurance industry with the banking industry. And it's, it's not that we're saying that um, people shouldn't put money in banks because it, it, is, a, it is a necessary uh, position for, for the economy to have money flowing through the banking system because I can't take and actually hand cash. If I'm uh, in one city, I can't actually take and hand cash to somebody in another city or I can't or in another country for that matter. So there, there is a necessity to having banks. But I, I think um, what people at one time, if they ever would uh, find out what banks were originally set up for, it was a place to store wealth. Mm-hmm. And, banks, and banks did not even um, um, exist at the very, for, for a long time because people did not have um, actually money, uh, currency. And then when currency came, it was actually wasn't safe to keep it on your own person. Um, as civilization started to advance, um, there wasn't the locks uh, you had to actually protect yourself, so on and so forth. So then what, it, what came about was what, every, what happens in every good capitalist society. And that's one of the reasons I'm not that worried about what's going on in the world right now is because uh, a society keeps going forward. Mm-hmm. So then the, these uh, institutions called banks said, hey, if you bring us your money right now, we will actually protect it for you. And so they had things like a more a sturdy uh, uh, building. They had bars on it. They had locks. They had people guarding it, so on and so forth. And then they would charge you, they would charge you um, money to keep it there. So you had to pay them for the protection, which makes sense. Then they started, then at some time they started to figure out, well, you know, we got a bunch of money here and People don't, they're not going to come back and get all the money at one time. So why don't we lend it out to people and we'll charge them an interest rate to actually lend the money to them. And that, and that'll be fine because not everybody's going to come back at one time to ask for their money back. Well, then that started working pretty well. So they thought, well, let's encourage people to actually give us your money and we'll protect it. So that is another thing, an economic thing that they did to uh, encourage people. They said, instead of you paying us, 
um, mm-hmm. to protect your money, we'll pay you to bring the money to our bank. Because if they, if they would pay you some money to bring the money to the bank or what we call interest, we'll pay you some interest if you bring the money to the bank, then they, we will have more money to then lend out to people mm-hmm. and we'll charge them a higher interest rate than what we are charging you. I don't know if any if our listeners have ever thought about the progression of how that happened, but that's exactly how that happened. Now, there was no regulations at that time. Um, they then, uh, of course, and some people would come at different varying, varying degrees, would come and, and ask for more money back. And then the banking people would get nervous or like, well, what if more people? And so they started uh, determining how much they really had to have in the bank if a certain amount of people would come and that would was a reserve uh, that they would keep. Now that reserve was just determined by the open market because if somebody would come into the bank and ask for their money back and they didn't have it, that wouldn't reflect well on the bank. Mm-hmm. And so if it didn't reflect well on the bank, then people wouldn't bring their money to the bank. See how this is just basic economics, just basic, um, frankly, marketing um, mm-hmm. We're marketing our banks. When you ask for our money, it will be there. And um, then they would compete. Bank down the street would say, hey, we're going to give you a little bit more interest. But then they couldn't pay too much interest because if they paid too much interest, they would have to charge too much interest to, to loan money. And then people wouldn't actually come to them to borrow money. So this is just great economics here, that how the free market works. But then eventually, um, the, as, as all things happen in society, the central, a central government comes in and they start it regulating because they get you know, undue arrest from um, the citizens. And then they, the more and more banking regulations came up about. And so then we had this federal oversight of the banking industry. And I said, I think all Bruce, that, that's probably one of the most important elements right. that we're going to be able to pull forward is that we have federal oversight of the banking industry, whereas the insurance industry is independent of that. There's a lot more decentralization. It's regulated at the state level and insurance companies are not bailed out by the federal government. They have to operate in a, I mean, I don't know if you want to call it a free market, society, but they, they're in a position where they're dependent on their own cash flow, their own reserves, and they work within, um, there's, there's a phrase that I'm looking for as well there, but they have to work through capitalism, not just through relying on the federal government to be able to bail them out if something bad were to happen. Yes. And yeah, and, and I know that was kind of a long story, but that was what I was actually setting up is, is the difference of why banks are regulated um, more on a federal level, and insurance companies are regulated on the uh, state level. There's a Department of Insurance for every state. And it's not just life insurance. It's also pro- property and casualty, health insurance. All the insurances are regulated at the state level. And that's, that might be uh, surprising to some people because a lot of people think health insurance is regulated by the federal government, and, it, and it's not. And so two really, uh, what I, I think are really smart men that I know, Carlos um, Lara, who is a workout specialist. And if people don't know what a workout specialist is, a work, uh, Carlos has spent 40, 40 years of his life actually helping uh, distressed companies 
work out their cash flow issues with their creditors um, to, and negotiating with banks on a constant basis uh, every day. That's what his business does. And then Dr. Robert Murphy, who is an Austrian economist, who is very well received by even by Congress. He's actually um, uh, been in front of Congress on several occasions as a person most um, knowledgeable on several economic issues, have both uh, written several, not only books about, the is- about this issue, about the s- uh, safety of, of insurance companies, but also about uh, how, how banking works. And uh, Dr. Robert Murphy um, has some pretty interesting things from an article on December 12th of banknotes um, that he writes every month. Um, I do think this is interesting that the assets of all commercial banks rose uh, from $43.7 billion in June of 1921 to $62.4 billion in June in in 1929. So there was an actual uh, run of the banks uh, up of their capital in banks uh, right up to the Great Depression. And that's an annual compound rate of 4.5%. However, the assets of life insurance companies grew by more than twice as rapidly as that from 7.9 billion in December of 21 to 17.5 billion dollars in December of 1929 that's an annual rate of 10.4% and what i think this shows is that what a lot of people don't realize is before the um, the advent of the stock market which which was more accessible to the common man through um, through their work, through uh, platforms that they could trade, stock broking brokers were really um, looking for people that had a lot of of uh, assets. So the common man did not do that. They actually stored their money in life insurance contracts and the bank. And I think Which, this is a good good time to bring this up, Rachel. Um, is when you think about it, financial there's there's only so many financial institutions. There's Security firms that uh, sell stocks, bonds, mutual funds. There's pensions systems in the United States. There are banks and there are insurance companies. And they're all places where people or institutions store their money. Bruce, I love that you mentioned that. And I want to come back to that in just a moment. But I wanted to point out as well, as you said, that a lot of times the common man then stored their money in life insurance policies. What's really interesting to note, and I don't think we talk about this often enough, that with life insurance companies, they have generally, the good companies have been around a very long time. And so I want to actually just share some of these dates with you. So we're talking about strong, stable life insurance companies that are mutual, which are owned by the policyholders or mutual holding companies. And we're in a position where these have survived not only the Civil War in many cases, but the Great Depression and the Great Recession. So just a little bit of context. Civil War, I had to look up the dates because I'm not a history buff. Maybe you are if you're listening and these come naturally to you. But the Civil War was between 1986. Nope, that doesn't actually sound right. Nope, 1980 and, and 1983, I believe. or no, 18, 18, 18, 18, 1860. I was like... <laughs> 1860 and 1860. Yeah, I have 86? to 65. That doesn't even look right either. So that's not going to work, Rachel. Well, nope. Uh, Let's just go ahead and nix that. But the Civil War was a long time ago. 1860. It started in 1860. And I think it ended in 1863. Well, that sounds more right. I must have written the wrong numbers. My goodness. 
So the Great Depression, this I'm more certain of. So this was between 1929 and the late 1930s. So we're talking about almost a full 100 years ago there, about 90 years ago. And then the Great Recession is the crisis that happened in 2008 that all of us have actually lived through, but it can be easy to forget in um, just with circumstances now feeling like that was so long ago. So if we look at some of the long-standing life insurance companies, we have several companies that have been around for a very long time. So for instance, Penn Mutual has been around for 172 years. We have Western and Southern, which owns Lafayette Life Insurance Company. It's been around for 132 years. Ohio National, 111. No particular order that I'm sharing these. Um, Security Mutual, 134 years. Guardian, 160 years. New York Life, 175 years. And then if you look way back, which this was really interesting, um, but Equitable Life Assurance Society started a very long time ago, and then they turned into a life insurance company, and that has actually been 258 years. So I don't believe that they're in the U.S. I need to um, check my stats on that again. But if you look up any life in- of these life insurance companies, you'll see that they've been around for a very long time. And what that means is they've weathered a lot of economic crisis. They've weathered tremendous ups and downs. And we're going to talk about how they came through the Great Recession. But what's really interesting to note is that even though we talk today about privatized banking with whole life insurance as being a place to store cash, this is absolutely not a brand new idea. This is not something that people are just becoming aware of today and we didn't know about it before. This is something that is more traditional and ancient and this thing that people used to store their cash in whole life insurance policies with life insurance companies. And so as a whole, Bruce, I'm going to come back to what you said. There's only four general types of industries that you can't or Um, institutions you can store your money with, security firms, pensions, banks, and insurance companies. Insurance companies are what we're highlighting and focusing on today, but it has been around for a long time. Yes, and um, here's here's the thing. Uh, We're going to try to compare and contrast this, and the first thing I think we need to do is go back to the banking industry, and after you heard my story about how the banks actually started, so then the federal regulators came in and said, well, you have to have reserve requirements. And those reserve requirements uh, are minimum reserve requirements, and it's called fractional reserve banking. So currently, the fractional reserve banking reserve requirement is 10%. That doesn't mean that all banks uh, have only 10% of what they're, um, they have lent out. So example, if you were to put $1,000 of cash deposits, into a bank, the bank is only required to keep $100 of that in the bank and they can lend out $900 of that. Uh, I read recently that the, the average uh, reserve reserves in a bank right now is somewhere around 16% instead of 10%. And that actually goes up and down depending on the needs of the bank. And then there's, um, maybe we'll do another uh, episode of this later on, there's overnight requirements and Banks can actually borrow money from each other and so on and so forth to, to meet those requirements. So what people don't realize is that, and, I, and I've actually experienced this uh, over my life, I've actually gone into a bank on a Thursday and asked for $5,000 in cash, and they told me, we can't give it to you. And I was absolutely shocked. And this wasn't that long ago. This may have been five or six years ago. And, and I already knew the answer why they couldn't give it to me is because it would actually bring them below their reserve requirements. But think about that. 
I mean, that's um, $5,000 in actual cash. Doesn't seem like that much. And this was a, a major regional bank. They said you could come back tomorrow and you could you could get it. And I said, well, how much can I get? And I I, I believe the number was like thirty nine hundred dollars that I could I could get. And so that's the idea that there that the all the money that we give to banks is not in the bank. Now a lot of people say, well, that's all right because we have something called the uh, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation or the FDIC, which was established to actually protect banks from going under. But the fact of the matter is banks still make um, bad loans and they still go under. And this was never more prevalent than what happened in the Great Depression. And the Great Depression saw many, many banks go under. And of course, at the same time, you would have had um, insurance companies, as we already reported, that uh, insurance companies were around during the Great Depression too. So. Should we go ahead and talk about that right now, yes, what they did ahead. during the Great Depression? Yeah. So, um, Bruce, and you can pipe in at any point in this as well. And we have a comment as well from Nolan Rosler. Um, and I'm not sure specifically which portion he's referring to, but he said actually the Fed rescinded that rule. There's no reserve requirement anymore as of two weeks ago. That probably, um, I think maybe you well, already I spoke to, to that. I, I know that they're constantly changing the reserve requirement. Um, so I'd have to look at that. And I do remember hearing something about that, but that was my point is they're constantly changing the reserve requirement. Excellent. Okay. Well, I am uh, just going ahead and updating there as well. So when we look back at the great depression, what was really interesting is, uh, there's several statistics on this and we're going to link to a couple of articles again through bank notes. And these articles, one of them was written by Carlos Laura and one by Robert Murphy that you had referenced earlier, but they talked about during the Great Depression, um, there were several banks closing and there was actually a run on the bank. So this was interesting because as you had fractional reserve banking at the time, any depositor who wanted to go get their money out, one person would not be a problem. However, when you had a situation where all of the depositors wanted their money out at the same time, there was not enough money in reserves to satisfy that demand. And so there actually was a banking holiday and they closed the banks. This was on March 6th in 1933. They actually closed all of the banks. And then there was the Emergency Banking Act that was passed on March 9th when Roosevelt had just stepped into office. And the, the, banking, the um, Emergency Banking Act then allowed banks to reopen when they were in a satisfactory condition to be able to provide um, to provide money to depositors. And so they were uh, several banks were then allowed to reopen as of March 13th or March 15th. And at that time, 2,100 banks never reopened. So that was some of the bank failure that happened around that time. Now, I also had seen, and I'm not sure where my notes were on this. Okay, only during the Great Depression, 38% of banks failed and only 14% of life insurance companies now, what was interesting about that as well is that of those life insurance companies, if a life insurance company goes under, that does not mean that all of the policyholders are left out in the cold. What that does mean is usually they're either um, bought out by another life insurance company and what the experience of the policyholders is during that time is usually that they still have all of their claims paid and they don't experience any interruption. And so that was one of the main points that Insurance yeah, Dr. companies specifically yeah, Dr. have. Murphy, 
Yeah, Dr. Murphy brought that up, and he also said, and, and this guy is, uh, has written a lot of books, and he researches all the time. He also says there's been claims that nobody has ever lost money in a life insurance uh, contract. Now, he says he cannot find anything to back that up, but he also cannot find anything that actually says people have lost uh, money in life insurance contracts. But what's interesting, Which, I, I talk to my clients all the time about this, is they say, well, how can a life insurance company that actually gets in trouble, how can another life insurance company come in and purchase it on pennies of, on the dollar and the life insurance contract still be valid? How does that make sense? Well, if you understand how um, businesses work, there's startup capital to every business. Well, the life insurance contracts are the same way. They're startup cost to every life insurance contract at the very beginning. An actuary has to design it. An underwriter has to decide whether a person is healthy enough for it. You have to send a nurse out. You have the home office expenses and you have sales expenses. So all those expenses come at the very beginning of a contract. So seasoned contracts will not have those expenses anymore. So life insurance companies are very, matter of fact, they are, they are very glad to go purchase those contracts because they don't have those uh, expenses at the beginning of and at the contract and they have all the capital from the cash value that is then instituted into their new um, uh, capital uh, requirements and they have more money to actually make money with. So they're really happy to, to buy these uh, contracts, especially with no uh, expenses on them. And um, so that's how it happens in the life insurance industry. If, if, if a company gets, in, if a company gets in trouble. And we're going to come back to that in a second because I want to talk about how life insurance companies are so highly regulated and where an insurance company, even a weak company, has significant assets and that they do still have a value as a company. But what happened is if you look at the Great Depression, we're going to go back to the Great Depression. Similarly, with the Great Recession, the 2008 crisis that happened, you see that banks I'm sorry, you see that life insurance companies have had near invincibility and fortitude. This was Carlos Laura saying the near invincibility and fortitude of the life insurance company industry is unmatched by commercial banks and investment firms. So you see life insurance companies coming out, emerging from crisis, financially sound, issuing policies, paying claims and serving, servicing in force business. So I want to come back to that banking holiday in the Great Depression. So what happened is that there was the, the banking holiday where Nobody could go to the bank during that banking holiday time frame and get their deposits or their money out of the bank. So they just had to wait. And then we saw several banks just close and never reopen. So at the same time, then people, as, as we're saying, that life insurance was a strong place where people were storing their cash, they then were turning to life insurance policies and trying to get either the cash surrender value or the um, cash... The, or uh, policy loan. Or they were actually wanting to take loans against the cash. Yes. So the cash book. value by surrendering the policy or taking a loan from the policy. Because this is a place that we talk about with privatized banking and whole life insurance, specifically taking policy loans is an ideal place to be able to access your capital. So people knew this as they were storing money in these policies. And unfortunately, what they had to do is have an insurance holiday as well. And most people don't talk about this as greatly. So I wanted to just highlight this. This is, this is again in one of the articles that we will be posting the link to. So what happened is during the insurance holiday is that 
asset values were comfortably in excess of policy reserves during the entire period, but they were worried that if people started taking too many policy loans, that they were not going to be able to um, have as much um, net worth in the company and as much reserves and that they would have to go out and purchase additional reserves. And they wanted to be in a position where they were coming to the brink, but not over the edge. Insurance companies were looking at this potential concern for them on the horizon and saying, we can't have all of the policyholders requesting their capital at this time, not because they didn't have the money to give, but because they needed insurance companies have to have a certain amount of assets in um, certain locations to make them stay viably financially strong. And so this is something that is tested through third party um, rating services. Yes. Which we're going to talk about those again in a second. So they were coming to a position of potentially being in a dangerous spot. And so what happened is that they had this insurance holiday also, and that meant that people could not get to the cash surrender value and taking policy loans. However, even during that time, insurance companies still continued to pay death claims and it wasn't a complete and total shutdown of access to your capital because in that time you still could get $100 if you proved dire and demonstrated need. So you could still get $100 of either cash surrender value or a policy loan. And then what happened is that insurance holiday actually fully lasted for six months. Now it tapered off over the last few months. What actually happened is that um, the insurance holiday started March 6th and then April 3rd, New York led the charge on this and then 28 other states followed suit. So again, this was not a nationally mandated thing. This was organized by the states. But by April 3rd, New York allowed loans or cash surrender values for paying rent or taxes. Then by June 7th, they relaxed the standards again to be able to get funds if you stated how you intended to use the proceeds. And then September 6th, the emergency was over, insurance law went back in force, and they could pay cash surrender values and grant policy loans again. But what was really interesting is during a time that banks were failing, customers in banks were losing money, the federal government had to step in and bail out the banks, there was a total suspension of banking activity. And if you were a customer of the bank, you couldn't get to your money at all. And when this holiday was over, it wasn't a solution. It wasn't like a cast that healed the banking industry. They still were in dire straits and in a terrible financial position. But insurance companies had financial strength and the ability to make their contractual payments, including policy loans, through at right afterwards. So they were still in a they were in a position of strength coming out of this insurance holiday. So their ability to make policy loans was challenged, but it wasn't prevented. And then even when the states intervened, their core business of providing death benefit was never interrupted. So it was just interesting to see how two industries navigated through the Great Depression. And you could say the reason why we're even considering or, or thinking about this at all is that if we're concerned about going into economic crisis, we can look back at history and say, how has historically this industry weathered this type of crisis? And how can we expect that in a worst case scenario, not, not what we think is going to happen, but how in a worst case scenario would my money and my reserves in a life insurance policy, how would that be handled? Yeah, and, I, and we don't often talk about this, but um, one of the things they also were able to do is continue to pay out their annuity payments. Oh, yes. Um, and that is something that uh, people 
um, may actually be more um, in touch with than even the whole life insurance is that annuities are guaranteed payments, uh, much like a pension. And they are backed by insurance companies. And they actually use the word guarantee, just like the whole life insurance companies use the word guarantee. And I, and I tell people all the time that in order to use that guarantee, there has to be a lot of lawyers that have looked at this and, and say, how can you use that word guarantee? Well, they can use the word guarantee because they know historically what has happened. They also know the capital requirements of these insurance companies. And they know that, that there is a, um, a guarantee, a guarantee um, uh, fund that these insurance companies must pay into similar to FDIC, although it's not backed by the full faith of the, of the government. Uh, but the guaranteed association is something that's similar that every insurance company that wants to do business in the state has to pay into so that a certain portion of, of their um, money is still guaranteed by the uh, uh, insurance guarantee, just like depositors, FDIC insurance is only guaranteed up to 250,000. Uh, there's different limits for every state. Um, we can talk about some of those, but really you have to check your state to see what the limits are. Um, Absolutely. I think we, uh, in the article, it mentions $300,000 of death benefit and a hundred thousand dollars of yes. cash surrender yes. value. Uh, so, um, but just realize there's, there's even more protections um, going on uh, within the insurance in, uh, industry as far as that goes. Bruce, I feel like we have so much more that we want to cover and can cover on this. Let's just answer a few specific questions. So if you want to make sure your insurance policy is stable and secure, specifically your life savings in your cash values protected, I want you first to know that it's a highly regulated industry and that the goal of regulating the insurance industry as a whole is to protect you as the policy owner. So that's just something really important. I'll highlight a few brief things about that. One is that they're, they have very conservative management. So insurance companies have a requirement for how much assets they have to have, assets over liabilities. They also um, are in a position where the state regular regulators require capital cushions. So they require the insurance company to overstate their expected future claim costs and have reserves even over that. So they're conservative yeah, so suppose, on top of conservative. Yeah, let's, let's be a little more, what they're talking about is mortality uh, issues. Which so means the life insurance company claim. has a liability to pay out claims and to right. Provide you your cash value. Those are liabilities on their balance right. sheet. Right. So, in, once again, in more simple language, then what they're saying is you they have to predict that more people are going to die than actually will die, and that's important when we're talking. Of, this episode is during the pandemic. You know, a lot of people are like, well, "What if a lot of people die?" Well, that wouldn't be good for insurance companies, but insurance companies have already factored that in to their um, their calculations, and they have more reserve requirements. And here's an example of the top insurance companies, mutual insurance companies, they have an average of $107 for every $100 of claims that they have promised in the future. We actually work with some companies that have $114 for every $100 that they have. So not only do they overstate their mortality expenses, but they have more money in reserve. Um, uh, to, to cover those. those. Even in times of stress, you can see how they're very, very well capitalized. Excellent. And 
that is the main focus of an insurance company. They actually use something called SAP for their accounting principles. This is statutory accounting principles, and it's different than most people use GAAP, the generally accepted accounting principles. What's interesting is that the SAP, statutory accounting principles, are more focused on solvency and making sure that a company is solvent and that they're way more conservative than GAAP, which really focuses on company valuation. So that was really interesting to me. Um, Bruce, just a point that you had made earlier, the insurance company is operating in a competitive profit and loss environment. That was the, the word I was looking for. They have to own their own safety net in many ways. And so because of the asset requirements that an insurance company has, they often will have a tremendous amount of assets that have real value that if a company did have to be liquidated, which is a last straw or a last resort, there still is tremendous assets that that particular company owns that can be sold and then and then distributed according to policy owners, making sure that they get their cash. Boy, Rachel, that's a really good point about a competitive environment because this comes up with people that are trying to figure out if they want to use um, life insurance company A or life insurance company B or life insurance company C and they get paralysis by analysis. They're like, I want the absolutely best insurance company and who's paying the best dividends? Who has the best loan rates? And the fact of the matter is, is that um, they have to be competitive. One can't be paying out a whole lot of a really large dividend um, compared to all the rest of them. There can be slight differences and some of them can't, they couldn't all of a sudden raise their loan interest because people wouldn't use those companies. It's a, it's a competitive situation. What you're really looking for is one that has great customer service and one that has great uh, financials, uh, guarantee financials, capital requirements. And, and almost all of them do. <laughs> so yes. this, is, this is what you're trying to figure out is, okay, now why do we know that they have and great capital requirements is that they have third parties that actually go in and look at this um, and ones that you've probably heard of before, uh, Moody's and Finch ratings and, and, and uh, there's something called a Comdex score for insurance companies, which is kind of a compilation of all the scores. And um, they're very, very strong. So it's a third party that's actually looking at this. What I want to say about that as well is that the third party ratings, they're usually on a scale of, there's an alphabetical scale, and there's actually a lot of complexity inside of all of these, the S&P Global Ratings, Moody's, Fitch's, AM, AM Best, specifically focused on insurance companies. You can learn about all of these, but basically they're all credit rating agencies that figure out how um, solvent a company is and how likely they are to be able to meet their financial commitments. And so they rate either whether they're on investment grade or non-investment grade um, credit ratings. And so they offer a score that you can publicly find out. And so there's like triple A down to um, not rated or D for distressed. And so what's really interesting is that you want to be working with companies when you're looking at a letter grade, you want to be in a position that you're over an A minus in, yeah. in terms of a letter grade rating. And then the Comdex score is kind of a overall overarching. It combines a bunch of different um, rating agency scores all together. And the Comdex score is actually zero to 100%. And so you want to make sure that you're working with a company that's 80 or better on the Comdex score. And that means you're going to be working in the top 20% tier of insurance companies. So that's one really important thing to note that when you look at insurance companies that have failed, and there's a website that shows, I can actually, I'll link that in the show notes as well, 
you can find out that the insurance companies that have failed usually were poorly rated or they were very small companies as opposed to the long long standing companies that have paid claims that have um, been through the Great Depression and Great Recession that have been standing the test of time. These companies that are having strong ratings right now are not in a position where you have to be concerned. Yeah. And I want to make sure that every, the listeners understand that failed does not mean that the policyholders actually lost money. Uh, it just means that they are no longer in business, but another insurance company comes in and purchases those contracts. I think, uh, uh, Carlos did a great job of talking about when, when this happens to happen, there's a liquidation event that happens. And so when uh, an insurance company comes in, there's a cost of administration uh, of that liquidation event is the first people that get paid. And then employees that work for the company, they get paid. And then policyholders are third in line to get paid before all other creditors get paid. And then, of course, if it is a stock company, which we, we don't uh, espouse for this particular uh, banking situation, but if it is a stock company, they are the last people to get paid as far as the stockholders in that stock company. And so you can see how policyholders' claims are very, very, um, very high up in, in liquidation events. Absolutely. And I think what was really interesting is, again, that the articles through Banknotes with Carlos Lara and Robert Murphy really articulated as well that they did not know of anyone who, as a policy owner, actually suffered a loss, even if they were having a life insurance policy with a company that went out of business. And so that was just a really strong um, peace of mind and safety to me. Now, that doesn't mean that if you are with an insurance company that happens to go under that you're in a position that you would, I can't say with certainty that you would never experience any type of a loss, but knowing that no one has up to this point that we can find or locate in research is uh, very encouraging. Yeah, uh, Rachel, and, and over my 30 plus years of doing this, uh, I have seen this. Uh, I haven't, I haven't witnessed, I, mean, I don't mean I've had witnessed a, a company going under or failing and then taken over by another, but I have had policies that we had to dig back and I won't mention any specific names, but I'm going to make one up. Let's just say the uh, Montana mutual company, because a lot of these companies actually were named after the States. Um, and I don't even think there was a Montana mutual company. That's why I used it. And they were then bought by um, AXA life insurance company. And then AXA life then sold their company to venerable life. And so you'll have somebody that has a policy from Montana Mutual back in the 60s or 50s, and then the person dies and you actually call them and, they, and they, the customer service number doesn't work. And then you have to do some research and find out that they changed into accent and accent changed into venerable, but then you finally get the venerable and, and you get the payout for the death benefit. And so that's a real life example of how the how I've seen this work over over my career. I really appreciate you sharing that because I have not personally experienced that, and um, your tenure in the industry has been a little bit longer, uh, significantly longer than mine. So I really appreciate you sharing that. So I think um, just really to 
be able to wrap up this whole idea. We are talking about life insurance company ratings. We're talking about if you're going to put your life savings somewhere that you really want to make sure that they are guaranteed, they're safe, you have this peace of mind and confidence that it's going to be there for you, you really want to know for sure what's a worst case scenario, what would actually happen if the life insurance company went out of business. What I want to encourage you is that by all of this research and all the things that we're sharing today, it's a tremendous amount of peace of mind to know that the life insurance company industry, the industry as a whole has weathered tremendous crisis and they've come out financially strong. And that's why the recovery to policyholders is very high, even outside of crisis or even after coming through crisis. So what I wanted to um, just go ahead and share with you, just, just like that bridge that we walked across on horseback with, which horses are very heavy. I mean, they're like 2000 pounds a piece and their, their feet are very pointy. And so if, if they were going to go through the bridge, you really, really would not want that to happen. It's all and pounds so, per square inch, Rachel. <laughs> there you go. It was all concentrated in a very small section, a small area. Um, yes, that's the, the uh, physics, scientific, scientific way of explaining that. So I live to tell the tale. I live to finish the ride. I actually don't remember the rest of it. I'm sure it was exhilarating, but that particular moment of trepidation and fear and concern and worry, we're all standing there really scared and wanting to make sure we're, we're going to live through this experience. That may be the same feeling that you're having right now with your money and saying, how do I make sure that my money is going to be there for me? So we hope that this has brought some peace of mind and some confidence and some clarity to you just in terms of doing your own research to figure out where you want to store your life savings. So if you would like to learn more about the liquidity, the stability of the life insurance industry to really protect your life savings, we have a free resource for you that's called the Quick and Easy Privatized Banking Guide for Investors. You can get that at privatizedbankingsecrets.com slash free guide. And we also have a course that really digs deeper into that if you're interested. And then if you are ready to talk with someone about your personal situation and you're trying to figure out, is privatized banking with whole life insurance something that I can use? Is this going to work for me? Is this what would work in my personal life to be able to store my savings and have that peace of mind and that confidence? You can talk with us, the advisor team at at The Money Advantage, I almost said at privatized banking, at The Money Advantage would be happy to talk with you about that. And so you can go to book on our calendar. We'll have the link in the show notes as well. And that is at themoneyadvantage.com slash calendar. So in closing, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for um, just exploring what you can best do to set yourself up financially for success. And in closing, please remember success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd and build a life and business you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. 
The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.